Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Northumbria Pulse Stop Pod. Uh, it's just me today. Well, not just me, but, oh, which I'll get to in a minute. But there's no Eve today, unfortunately. She's not. She's not available. So I am the sole host for today. Um, and we just first of all, I want to really issue an apology to our listeners uh, for the last couple of weeks. I obviously a lot's been going on. I was so desperate, and Eve was as well, to get a podcast together. Uh, obviously with everything going on with the no confidence vote in Westminster um, and things like that really but the problem was is just that the facilities was wasn't available and it was just so difficult to be able to balance my work experience with my with this podcast unfortunately so I'm really sorry about that but hopefully me and Eve will be able to sit down in the next few weeks and be able to have like a really good catch up although some of the stuff that we had planned about with the no confidence vote things like that might be a little bit old now, but it's still sort of fresh in the memory, especially with the recent by-elections and stuff. So um, I'm not going to do the news today because um, we have a guest with us, the third guest now, I believe, on the podcast. Um, and this is this is a Pulse Up Pod first because we're not actually in the studio today. I'm currently sat on Zoom along with my guest, who is currently on sabbatical. He is a, a Northumbria lecturer in Spanish history and is the chair of the Foro de Profesor Think Tank, which I believe I pronounced that right. You'll have to um, you'll have to correct me if, if that's wrong, uh, which is a oh, yeah. platform which um, is Spanish for the Teachers Forum, which in their own words is a platform for discussion of ideas of all those who have in common a commitment to the unity of Spain and respect to the rule of law. And as I say, he's currently on research leave in Sofia, Bulgaria, so, please welcome to the podcast, uh, Carlos Condesalares. Uh, hola, Carlos. Uh, ¿Cómo estás, mi amigo? <laughs> hola, Jack. Zdravete, uh, as they say here in uh, Bulgaria as well. Uh, delighted to be in the in your podcast, and uh, and just really looking forward to uh, to discussing the, um, the well the events, the political events that have taken place over the past uh, few days in Bulgaria because they have. Uh, they have loads of really interesting uh, variables, and uh, and I think that they might be of interest to uh, to your listeners. Definitely, and I mean one of the one of the questions we'll get into is we'll discuss that obviously on the surface. You've been you me doing this interview with you out in Bulgaria may just look completely random because of the lack of media coverage that we have in the UK um, towards what's going on in. Bulgaria right now as I've done the research for this I've only found one sort of article talking about it um, and I found an e- a declaration from the US embassy in Bulgaria but there's been so little media coverage but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that so uh, off the back um, what we like to do is because obviously we're going to be discussing discussing quite a, like a sort of serious hard-hitting topic really but off the back I don't know if you listened to the podcast before we like to ask our guests a just a question just to break the ice just a random a random sort of like philosophical question just to sort of get the ball rolling so our question is that we like to ask all our guests do you think in the world there are more doors or wheels more doors or wheels yes in the world um, I would probably go with wheels, actually. Wheels, yeah. yeah I think I, I've always leaned towards that, and I believe Eve has as well. I don't think we've had anyone on the podcast so far who have said door, so I think the sort of overwhelming majority so far is leaning more towards wheels, really. And like I say, it's just a question that we ask to try and like 
break the ice and it's, it's a really good question because we, we, we've had full-on debates where we had uh, Northumbria against sexual violence on uh, along with uh, the politics society's equality, equality officer and we were sat there chatting for a good couple of minutes about <laughs> weighing up all the different variables it was it was hilarious but we'll not let that distract us from why we're actually here so in your own words this start off and take as long or as little as you like what is currently going on in Bulgaria that's so important that me and you need to be here today to be discussing this? Right. Uh, well, first of all, I would say that it's always dangerous when you tell a lecturer that they have as long as they want because we are used <laughs> to having a happy audience. You know? and, uh, and, and that can be a dangerous thing to do. Uh, but I'll try to be concise and I'll try not to, uh, not to bore people. Uh, I mean, first of all, we have to start with a little bit of, uh, of context. Uh, Bulgaria, of course, is one of the of the European Union 27. Uh, it is one of the, of the latest uh, additions. And of course, uh, Bulgaria is a country with a, uh, with a very, uh, very rich uh, historical and political uh, heritage. Of course, it was one of the, uh, of the countries that were uh, part of the, um, uh, well, of the, of the Soviet Union uh, until uh, 1989, until the fall of the, of the regime. And today, it is a country that's aligned with the European Union and with NATO. Now, what happens in the uh, what happened in the Bulgarian Parliament, as happens in um, in many uh, well in many uh, in many democracies these days, uh, it is a very fragmented parliament. There is uh, there's lots of new parties, there's lots of very small parties, and six months ago, a coalition was um, was put together by the current prime minister, whose name is uh, Kirill Petkov. And uh, this is a, a coalition that uh, encompasses several small parties. So it was always a precarious one. Now, what, uh, the reason why this uh, government was uh, and is a really interesting one is because uh, it broke away from a traditional uh, policy of uh, relative uh, friendship, of relative uh, neutrality, of Bulgaria when it came uh, to Russia. That is, uh, Kirill Petkov, to give you an idea of who he is, he's, uh, he's my age, he's 41, I think, and he's, um, uh, he has a very Western profile. That is, he's someone who was educated in Harvard University. Uh, he lived for a long time as well in Canada, and, um, and he's of a very liberal uh, persuasion politically. That is, um, he set up a government that is very pro-European, that is very pro-Western, and uh, when it came to the uh, to the war in Ukraine, well, he aligned very clearly with uh, the West, okay, with NATO. Uh, Bulgaria is a, is a NATO country, and uh, and politically he was uh, very uh, very militant in his pro-Western stance. Now, in um, uh, in Bulgaria. Um, this is a relatively young democracy as well. I mean, I don't want to be patronizing, you know, about this because it's something that that, that can be uh, that can be a little bit of a temptation in the West. Now, when we look uh, east or when we look south, we tend to look with with those condescending eyes sometimes. But um, but there are very many variables here. Uh, that is, the previous prime minister before uh, Petkov was someone called Boyko Borisov, very big bloke, and someone who was um, uh, who was the bodyguard the personal bodyguard of the former communist dictator of Bulgaria, a very, very different profile, a traditionalist, uh, um, someone who, I wouldn't say is pro-Russian, but uh, but was certainly much more, you know, like, like we see, for instance, Viktor Orban, you know, with this very equivocal attitude towards Russia uh, and all the rest. 
and someone who's backed up by nationalists and who is much less of a pro-Western type of politician. Now, what's happened uh, is that uh, over uh, the last uh, month or so, there has been an uh, internal movement within uh, Kirill Petkov's government, which has meant that one of the parties has turned, one of the coalition parties has turned against him, and there was a vote of no confidence, and the current government lost it. So uh, now there are two months ahead of us in which uh, Petkov can try to form an alternative government, or otherwise there will be a new election. This will be the fifth general election in Bulgaria over the past uh, two years, to give you an idea of the degree of instability that uh, we're looking at. Okay, yeah, and I mean, I think we might have had, me and Eve might have briefly touched upon it before in earlier episodes, this idea of voting systems, uh, whether proportional representation is better or where majoritarian systems are better. But obviously, with this happening, um, you know, five governments in two years, like it's like you say, it goes to show the scale of the instability. So was this something, how long have you been in Bulgaria? Was this was this something that has arisen whilst you've been here or have you gone out specifically to look at what's been going on and follow the developments? No, actually, my um, I'm very interested in politics and obviously my uh, my role in the part of the professoress is very much uh, about that, about rule of law, about uh, 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 democracy, about democratic institutions and also about the fight against uh, populism and uh, an extremism in general and disinformation, which is something that runs uh, rampant. This is where the connection with my research actually comes from. I'm actually a medieval historian and I look at things like conspiracy theories and how that operates, conspiracism, basically. Uh, the conspiracy theories that we had in the medieval period are very, very similar to the ones that we have today. They just adapt themselves to, uh, to the narratives of the present time. Uh, we have them, they are transnational and they are also chronologically very versatile. That is, these are narratives that we see uh, in the medieval period and that we see today. And, uh, and so this is the connection really between my, if you want my two, um, uh, you know, my two key academic interests. So I wasn't here to follow the, uh, the, the political situation. I was here to do my, uh, to do a research fellowship in the Center for Advanced Studies in, uh, here in Sofia, where we work uh, with people from, from Ukraine, from the Czech Republic, from uh, Hungary, from Romania. Uh, we we work together with uh, Bulgarian scholars and we, uh, and we shared our research. It's very enriching, actually. It's a, it's a fantastic community, academic community here. And uh, um, but yes, it coincided with uh, with this uh, situation. Uh, to give you an idea, there's been demonstrations on the streets pretty much every day for and against the government, with very different profiles as well. In favor of the government, normally a very young population uh, that sees this government as a ray of hope uh, to turn. Bulgaria, um, certainly away from the so-called orbit of influence of the Kremlin, the young people are very, very much pro-Western, pro-European and anti-Russian, not just the young people, but in general, those uh, also uh, in Sofia, in the big cities, uh, that's what the profile is. You know, we have very, very similar dynamics in other countries, whereas perhaps there is an older population uh, with uh, less of an educational profile who sometimes are nostalgic of the of the past, and also something quite um, important in the case of Bulgaria is that um, historically, of course, um, Russia uh, was uh, was a, a friend, a friendly nation because uh, Russia helped to liberate Bulgaria from Ottoman rule in the 19th century. So throughout Bulgaria, you can see plenty of monuments to uh, to the Russian army that liberated Bulgaria from the Ottomans. 
And uh, this historical narrative is one that is quite strong still with the older people, even though there is very little nostalgia of the Soviet era, that's for sure. I mean, that there were uh, still gulags in Bulgaria all the way until uh, 1989, you know, so, so there isn't as much that, but there is more of a, there is a nuanced uh, relationship towards Russia. And this moves us, I think, to what the elephant in the room is throughout the whole block of Eastern and Southeastern Europe, which is whether to look West or to look East. And uh, the Russian, you know, the the, uh, the Russian conflict is very, very much at the core of what's happening here as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's like you say, like 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 you're just saying there. It seems to be, especially more recently, with obviously what's been going on in Ukraine, is that this idea of sort of like the ideologies really that we saw more towards the Cold War really is coming back in. Is that like countries in the middle of it have to look either towards the West and NATO or towards uh, Moscow and the Kremlin, really. But it's like, but one thing I did pick up on what you were saying there was, is that there have been protests every day which are both uh, pro-government and anti-government. And I suppose that's probably a good thing for just democracy in general. Because obviously we've seen in places like Hong Kong, for example, um, where uh, China, the Chinese communists have come in and um, imposed obviously stricter laws, which obviously violates the Sino-British agreement. There's been, well, there's been less freedom to protest there. I suppose, really, the fact that you're seeing protests from both sides of this argument means that democracy is kind of functioning in a way because the people are getting involved and are being allowed to sort of speak, really, from their opinions from both sides. So it's not necessarily that autocracy is seeping in. It's more of just instability within the democratic system. Not within the democratic system, within the democratic government, rather than the democratic system, sorry. Yes, I mean, that's a a fair assessment, I would say. Uh, Bulgaria is one of the the European Union uh, nations. There is a there is a separation of powers here. Uh, you know, there are free elections and the political participation is very high, actually. Yes, I mean, the Bulgarian democracy does have some really noticeable strengths, but it also has some very vulnerable elements to it. And, uh, and I think that some of those uh, were at play here. There is a still uh, quite a presence in Bulgaria of uh, mafia type of movements. And, um, and this, is a bit, this is a legacy. Of the um, of the dictatorial past, okay. This is a bit of a of a legacy of the of the past. There are uh, powerful oligarchs, for instance, with um, political interests that uh, sometimes are very difficult to navigate for uh, political forces like those uh, supporting uh, the current prime minister Kirill Petkov. You know, he's a very small party. And you need the backing of at least some of these very wealthy people. You also have. The, or the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, uh, which, which is quite powerful. This is a five, six million people country. And, uh, and there is also a presence of uh, Russian economic interests, of uh, Russian oligarchy, and of uh, some um, inertia still from the uh, Soviet times. Uh, this is a country that's very much in the orbit of, um, of Russia. Uh, it is. Uh, in the periphery of it, that is, it's a country that has made a very clear and very decisive choice to join the European Union, to join NATO as well, and even to join the Euro, which is due to do next year. Uh, so uh, it's clear where the country is going. And uh, as I say, when you look at the generational divide, it's very clear that young people, uh, in a few years' time, that you know this will be, uh, this will be a country that will be. Uh, you know, very much in line with the others in the European Union 27, but it does have some weaknesses. And I think that some of them were at play here. 
and um, and they were to do with those interests. That is, those six MPs from the government that turned against uh, Kirill Petkov. Uh, I think that we are not looking at just at people who change their mind over a policy issue. We are looking at something a little bit more profound than that, and we are looking at those uh, obscure interests to which uh, Bulgarian democracy is vulnerable. The same thing has been denounced by Kirill Petkov uh, before uh, leaving office, in the sense that um, there, are, there is significant uh, judicial evidence against uh, the previous prime minister, against Boyko Borisov, whom I mentioned earlier, of corruption, uh, widespread corruption. Uh, the, um, out of the EU27, this is without question the most corrupt of, uh, of all. You know, there, there is a lot of ingrained corruption, and, uh, and this is something that's acknowledged by, that was acknowledged by, by the current government. They tried really to, um, to, to, uh, to show the degree of corruption that there was. They took, um, they took some of the, of the oligarchs and some of the previous leaders to court. Uh, sometimes the, um, uh, the tribunals are not particularly effective. Uh, that is, there is a separation of power, but as always, uh, this is not perfect. That is, there are uh, tribunals that are not very keen to prosecute the previous uh, administration. And uh, something that Petkov has done before leaving office is hand over quite a lot of evidence to European tribunals and, um, you know, trying to utilize that uh, democratic guarantee that the European Union is in order to, uh, to try and move on. That is, his program was a radical program of reform to tackle corruption and to take Bulgaria away from the influence of oligarchies, of uh, economic interests, of the of the mafias and so on. And of course, this is a difficult thing to do. So we don't know what's going to happen. It could happen that the previous government uh, of Boyko Borisov returns, you know, which would be a step back in my view, but we'll see. Yeah, oh yeah, wow, that sounds really interesting. Because I, can, I do remember reading about um, his anti-corruption ticket when I was obviously doing the research for this. And you, you did kind of answer my next question there about in, in terms of Bulgaria's relationship with Europe in the uh, it is quite a sort of pro-European country, obviously, being part of the um, the EU and stuff. But obviously, you mentioned about the corruption. And when you think of sort of like corruption in Europe, you think of places like, I don't know, Hungary, for example, places maybe like Belarus, who sort of have these more friendly ties to um, Russia. So, and who are more sort of like right-wing, things like that. So that was sort of my next question, really. We obviously saw with Brexit, a bounce in support for a few Eurosceptic parties throughout Europe, for example, just to name one, the AFD in Germany. Did Bulgaria did Bulgaria experience this? Like, was there a bounce in Euroscepticism? Or has that just has it just generally been sort of more pro-European, really? No, the dynamics here are, uh, here are very different, I have to say. And um, this is one of the things that surprised me the most uh, when for instance, I attended a few demonstrations here um, in support of, uh, of Ukraine, and uh, I attended a few a few rallies as well. For instance, outside the Russian embassy, the Russian embassy here is a, is a massive building on, uh, in the middle of uh, of uh, Bitusha, and um, there were thousands of people, and they were telling me, "Well, this is you know, we very rarely seen so many people in a demonstration here." I saw lots of European Union flags, and that is. Um, the the cause of the well, of the young and of the what we would call the liberal progressive people here is very much uh, one that can be summarized with the European Union flag. That is the European Union 
is uh, stepping away from the past. It's stepping away from the USSR, basically, no? from the from the 1989 past. Yeah. And uh, something that surprised me massively as well was to see NATO flags. Even that is is something that's that you don't see in demonstrations in the West, no, in Western no. Europe. Uh, this is something that's regarded as anti-establishment, anti-all people, you know, until those um, those values, perhaps represented by the nationalists, by Boitzhoff, uh, by those who are who lean towards a friendlier relationship with Russia, all of that is regarded as old uh, runs in the stuff and what's really provocative is to come out with a NATO flag, you know, which is something that yeah. that uh, sort of, uh, you know, it puts, um, uh, you know, the dynamics are different, yeah, in that sense. Uh, so there wasn't much of a, of a Eurosceptic, um, of a Eurosceptic uh, reaction here. What there is, and there's something that's still quite powerful, is um, uh, is nationalist parties, no? the parties that are very much on the on the populist, uh, nationalist type of um, yeah of uh, spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that I, I think I probably did word that question wrong. I, I think I did sort of mean nationalist, but like you you realised, and I said that is that obviously nationalism in the West, especially in the UK, is so like tied into the whole idea of Euroscepticism. So mm-hmm. like, it's like I'm saying, when you think of sort of Very places, fine. when you think of places like, you know, corruption in Europe, you think of places like, like I'm saying, like Hungary, Belarus, who are quite sort of geographically close to Bulgaria, um, who, and obviously it's like I'm saying, is with the corruption that you then sort of look at the pol- the politics of that and it's sort of very Eurosceptic and it's very um, yeah. right wing. So it was just, it was just something that I was, interesting but it's really interesting to know how you say that these flags are being flown because obviously as a, as a way to sort of like stick it to the man really but it's, it's quite good because I've, I've, I have all these questions lined up and I've not actually had to sort of like shift massively from one subject to another because you obviously mentioned the um, the demonstrations against uh, what's been going on with Ukraine how has that conflict sort of impacted on what's been going on uh, with the Bulgarian government yeah I mean um but, but one thing I would say still about the nationalists is that even though the nationalism in Western Europe, we tend to, uh, you know, we tend to um, identify that with the right or with the with the hard right. But here, quite often, it is a phenomenon of the far left, actually. That is, of um, uh, of the um, uh, of the people who are nostalgic of the uh, of the previous uh, regime, basically. No? Uh, but but yes, there is a bit of a confluence there, and um, and there is also something that uh, that. To me, it was very surprising, and uh, one of the reasons for the fall of the current government was the um, the potential accession of North Macedonia to uh, the European Union, which was being blocked by Bulgaria and by Bulgaria only uh, after, as you know, uh, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Well, it changed its name to North Macedonia in order to yeah. meet Greece, and uh, but there is another element to it, which is their language. They call Macedonian, but. Uh, Bulgarian nationalists regard as Bulgarian. So Bulgaria is asking them to, I mean, this is something that's quite bizarre, you know, from, from our perspective and, and something that I learned whilst being here. They are asking them to change the name of the of their language as well and to call it and what it is, it's a, a, um, in their view, which is a, a dialect of Bulgarian. This was one of the excuses that were put by those six MPs to actually overthrow this government, that it was that they wanted to, to unblock this whole situation and they wanted to, to just move forward with uh, with a friendlier relationship with, uh, with North Macedonia. Uh, just a, a bit of an aside, but unfortunately I didn't answer the question you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it was just really about um, 
so that how has the uh, Ukraine conflict impacted on what's been going on? Ukraine, yes. Um, well, as you can imagine, um, uh, again, one of the reasons why there wasn't such a Eurosceptic or uh, reaction here is that you, when you have a belligerent, big bully neighbor like uh, like Russia uh, at the moment, with uh, with Vladimir Putin's regime uh, going rogue, basically. Um, well, this is the umbrella, really. The European Union, NATO, these are the umbrellas that protect Bulgaria from uh, Russian aggression at the end of the day. So, um, so yes, when, when people see what's happening to Ukraine, well, this is something that uh, the vast majority of people here are taking uh, a very uh, pro-Ukraine stance. Uh, the demonstrations have been uh, massive, uh, really, and uh, any shows of support for, uh, for Russia uh, have either been subdued or non-existent. That is, um, there is, I think, a very, a very clear. And this is something that's felt uh, much more closely, I think, than it does in the in in Western Europe. Uh, that is, these are people whom, until 1989, were subdued by uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, Putin's rhetoric is very much uh, along the lines of uh, all of those territories that used to be part of the Soviet Union. Well, are part of historical Russia and all, the, all of this nonsense that that Vladimir Putin is coming up with. Uh, so, of course, this is something that's seen as a threat by countries like Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria, another country that relies almost 100% in terms of energy from Russian gas. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's been a few um, cold showers that were had here. It's a very, a very first world uh, problem, you know, when you, when you put it in context. Uh, but, uh, but yes, um, no, it has uh, been something that strikes home, really. Uh, people feel uh, Russia as a very present, uh, you know, as a very imminent presence here and one that is potentially very hostile, yeah. Yeah, and obviously I don't want to flip it onto um, just this dominating about Russia, but obviously it plays a big part. It's like you say, is that they're traditionally very sort of neutral towards Russia. Um, could you see Russia and Putin pushing for more influence in the Black Sea region if they fail to meet objectives? Well, if they, well, like either way, really, if they meet objectives in Ukraine or fail to do so, because obviously there's been rumours about potentially pushing for more influence in Moldova in the uh, breakaway region of Transnistria. So could you see them sort of like heading further into the Black Sea and looking at places like Bulgaria and obviously Turkey is a bit out, more out of the question, but could you see them sort of pushing for that greater level of influence around sort of where you are now? Um, soft influence, without question. They, they never gave up that, and and in fact, not just in Bulgaria, but uh, but everywhere else. I mean, there was Russian interference in the election of Donald Trump in uh, in America in 2016. There was Russian interference in the Brexit campaign. There was Brexit. There was Russian interference very very clearly, and I've researched it as well on the Catalan independence movement as well. And basically, Russia interferes with anything that can do damage to uh, to NATO. And to, uh, and to EU nations, that is, uh, anything that creates instability, they, uh, well, the, the, the Russian regime does uh, support it. Uh, in terms of military intervention, well, uh, you mentioned Turkey, you mentioned Bulgaria. Turkey and Bulgaria are uh, NATO members. If uh, I mean, it's anyone's guess what Russia is going to do next. Uh, but obviously, we would be looking at a world war if they, uh, if they stepped into Bulgaria, because it is a NATO nation, so, uh, so then yeah. that would... That, that would trigger the, the, the automatic uh, course, response by NATO, which would be to go to war against Russia. I mean, 
uh, God forbid that happens. But um, but yes, in terms of influence, and uh, and as you mentioned, the Black Sea, the uh, I think it's pretty clear that Putin's initial idea was to overthrow the the, the Ukrainian regime. He had intelligence that perhaps uh, made him think that that was going to be much easier than it actually is. And uh, yeah. his second idea was to create that uh, land corridor throughout the Black Sea that connects uh, even Transnistria, as you mentioned, with um, uh, with Russia uh, by means of uh, of connecting Crimea, uh, the Donbass, um, Odessa, which has been bombed today again, and so on. Uh, this is looking increasingly unlikely, I would say. Uh, but yes, I mean, I would I would think that this is a more realistic prospect. Yeah, the, the connecting Transnistria via um, uh, via Ukraine than uh, really entering uh, Bulgarian territory because that would be that would be a world war basically. Yeah, no, and obviously it sounds scary, and we obviously don't want to like scaremonger, but obviously international relations can be a very sort of scary uh, thing yeah. to discuss, really. So, just one thing that I want to know, and it's sort of like what I started with is why isn't this getting more coverage back here? Because it's like I was saying, I only found like one article that was talking about it. So why why isn't something as significant as this being talked about? Uh, well, I mean, I suppose the um, the dynamics of the of the press in um, in the, in the West and the of the Anglo-Saxon press in particular um, don't regard what happens in Eastern Europe as particularly relevant to the British public. Uh, I mean, as we know, as you know, you know, as, a, as an international relations and, and politics uh, uh, student, well, uh, you know, everything affects us. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, th there are other things in the headlines. Uh, very clearly, the cost of living crisis, which, of course, it's, it's very much affecting this part of the world as well. The, uh, the Ukraine war and, uh, of course, all of the domestic issues uh, in the UK. Um, the, the dynamics have been more or less the same as where it's only really specialized press in uh, in Europe and, uh, and mostly in Eastern Europe that has covered uh, this issue. Um, but uh, but yes, I mean it is um, it is surprising, but only to a certain extent because, um, as I say, this would be the fifth election in Bulgaria, and uh, it comes to, to a point where the instability uh, becomes the new normal. So. Um, so people are really waiting to see where, the, where, this, uh, where this goes, you know, how things uh, settle here. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, obviously, it's like you said, the other stuff that's in the news, I don't want to obviously discredit those as being non-stories because they obviously are. But when we sort of speak about, you know, increasing Russian influence in the area, you'd have thought that maybe the press would have given this a little bit more coverage because obviously with the war in Ukraine dominating the news, with Russia at the centre of it, you'd think that for them to want to in increase their influence further, that would sort of get a bit more coverage? Or have I just totally missed the point there? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think that uh, it's just put into, um, uh, into context because um, what's happening in uh, Poland, for instance, uh, with, the, uh, with the Polish government extremely belligerent against uh, the Kremlin, what's happening in Lithuania as well with the blocking of Kaliningrad, uh, what's happening? Uh, what's happened recently in Hungary as well with the re-election of Orbán, which, um, which of course was uh, unwelcomed by the European Union and by the West, I mean, quite clearly, and uh, and also because we see uh, we see that uh, that Russia has a very um, 
a very well established and a very well developed network of influence across the world. We see it with the oligarchs. We saw it. We saw how it reached the UK as well, no? With the oligarchs, with Roman Abramovich, and and all the rest. And I think that uh, this uh, is something that sort of flies under the radar, mostly because Bulgaria is a relatively small country in the, even though it is a strategic place, as you said, by the Black Sea, and uh, even though it has borders with uh, with uh, with other countries that are not in the uh, European Union or in NATO. This is a country that has borders with Serbia, for instance. No? Yeah. So, um, uh, so despite that, because of that, I think in part, uh, perhaps it's regarded as less immediately relevant. I mean, we live in an era where um, international relations and where uh, politics, I mean, this, we live in really, really interesting times. I mean, we wish we lived in less interesting times, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but perhaps a situation like this, uh, say 10 years ago, would have made many more headlines than it's doing now, precisely mm -hmm. because there's only so many headlines you can have. You know, when you have yeah. a war going on, at the doorstep of Europe, when you have the immigration crisis as well in Southern Europe, when you have uh, everything else that's going on with the with the uh, cost of living, with the energy crisis, with the political crisis across the continent, uh, this is something that's flying under the radar, and I think that I, I would commend you for picking it up, actually. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, it's, it's like, it's kind of a little bit of a bad-running joke on this podcast in that, in that we only really report, we can only report on what we see in the news, but obviously something like this, had we not had I not been introduced to you, I would have never have known this was going on. So I can only, I can only thank you for that, really. Now, obviously, I don't know if you can see it on your screen, but we are on a bit of a time limit, unfortunately, because uh, Zoom Zoom likes to find ways to charge you more, and I, I can't afford that as yep. a student. So I'll wrap it up with a couple of questions. Um, how have Bulgaria's neighbours reacted to the sort of collapse of the government? Like, are they are they nervous that this could that this could spread? to them or is it sort of not necessarily like you know the dying days of democracy as it was no i think that the most uh, uh, the most relevant uh, reaction in this case would be that of north macedonia for them it is very big stakes yeah. uh, whether or not uh, bulgaria is going to finally unblock their uh, candidacy their accession to the european union so uh, so I think that this is most relevant directly for uh, North Macedonia. Remember that North Macedonia has uh, it, it in itself uh, very, very high stakes when it comes to its regions and, uh, and when it comes to Russian relationships as well. So for, for North Macedonia, it is very relevant. I think for the rest of, the, of Bulgaria's neighbors, it is, uh, it, it is not seen as something that affects them uh, massively, uh, of course. There is the um, the eternal issue of the of Russia, but uh, other than that, uh, I would say that it is for North Macedonia that this is really high stakes. Well, I suppose that's good that sort of like that the stakes aren't necessarily, you know, um, there's not like high stakes for a wide proportion of Europe. Obviously, it's not good that it's it's high stakes for North Macedonia, but sort of like. I suppose less is better, if that makes sense. So just finally, really, because obviously democracy is always under fire in the West and things like that, and it always has been. So with this government obviously being, you know, voted out through no confidence, can you see Bulgarian democracy becoming uh, destabilised in the future? Or is it just is it just democracy in action, basically, what's been going on? Uh, no, I think it's, uh, it's at the moment it is a very unstable system. Uh, it does have some uh, checks and balances. It does have some solid institutions. Uh, there is uh, a high degree of freedom 
uh, of expression, but there is also a very sinister shadow there of, as I mentioned, mafia, uh, corruption, and uh, Russian meddling. For a small country like this, this can be um, this can be quite uh, destabilizing factors. Uh, you put that together with the political fragmentation that is uh, characteristic of the rest of, um, of, as you mentioned, proportional representation parliaments in Europe at the moment, and this can be a cocktail that can be quite uh, that can be quite uh, disastrous. So remember also that um, uh, the um, the COVID recovery funds that the European Union is sending to most nations are pending on presenting a viable budget, and without a government, you cannot have a budget. Without yeah. a budget, you cannot have that crucial money. And this is a country that's also uh, suffering from economic crisis, like every other country. But uh, but it is a country that's particularly exposed to uh, political instability. Uh, what do I think will happen? Well, what, uh, I, I find it very difficult to uh, distinguish between what I think will happen and what I hope will happen, which is that there will be another election and the people will perhaps give the current government a larger majority so that they can operate uh, they can operate in a better uh, in better terms. Uh, from having spoken to uh, my colleagues, Bulgarian colleagues, local people, they're already hopeful that that's what's going to happen. That Petkov uh, can go to an election and uh, get uh, a better majority than he had at the moment, less precarious, so that he can carry on with the uh, with his agenda, which is fairly popular at least in the cities and at least amongst the, the young educated population. So hopefully that's what uh, will happen. Yeah, and it's all going to be very, very interesting to follow. And I, I, I was saying to Eve, uh, I feel like it's almost a little bit of a scoop that we've got you on this to sort of discuss this unfolding issue about what's going on. So it's going to be definitely very interesting to uh, follow, really. Now, I don't want obviously Russians, but we have got about a minute left in this meeting, so I'd better sort of wrap it up. So I just want to say, that don't forget, you can follow us on uh, social media. So at North Hungary Politics Society on Instagram, and then at PulseOpPod on Twitter, and be sure to use the hashtag PulseOpPod. Uh, you can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, by searching uh, for PulseOpPod, really. And I just want to say that, Carlos, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today, and I really hope that, you know, everything works out, really, because this is something that it's not been getting very, very much coverage, but it's a serious matter. So thanks very much, Carlos. It's been my pleasure, Jack, and thank you very much for having me. Thank you, and we will see you in the next episode. See you later.